The Good Reading Podcast is brought to you by Read, the monthly book subscription that pairs a new release book with a pampering gift delivered to your door. There are new books every month and nine genres to choose from. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxury.com.au to find out how. Frederick Deeming was the antithesis of everything the Victorian era stood for. In an age that prized restraint, good manners, modesty, and a morality based on sober Christian ideals, Deeming defied every convention. He seemed bereft of any moral core, more a demon than a man. Some scientists had declared him to be a throwback of some kind, a living fossil closer in mind and spirit to primal man. No wonder millions around the world had followed the case. Madame Tussauds in London was preparing a wax figure of the man and a replica of one of his killing grounds, complete with broken concrete and bloodied bodies. Sidney Dickinson had been as transfixed as everyone else. During the trial, he had found himself unable to look away from the accused man. There had been times when he feared his eyesight was playing tricks because there seemed to be two Frederick Deemings. The first was that bantam rooster, puffed up and always crowing and heckling, a man full of spite and contempt who would gaze across the crowded courtroom with a maniacal grin as if expecting a round of applause whenever he uttered one of his witless one-liners. The other Deeming was a sober, almost dignified figure who might easily have passed for a polite and mild-mannered clergyman sipping tea at a church gathering and respectfully listening to a parishioner's interpretation of that morning's sermon. It was not as if he made an effort to keep himself in control, Dickinson would recall years later, but rather as if he were a man with two strong opposed and antagonistic sides to his nature, of which one or the other might manifest itself without any conscious exercise of will. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Gary Linnell is one of Australia's most experienced journalists. He has won several awards, including a Walkley for Best Feature Writing. He's the author of four books, including Football Limited, The Inside Story of the AFL, Raylene, Sometimes Beaten, Never Conquered, Playing God, The Rise and Fall of Gary Ablett, and the best-selling Buckley's Chance, the story of William Buckley's escape into the Australian bush to live with an Aboriginal tribe for more than 30 years. But today I'm talking to Gary about his latest book, The Devil's Work, How Australia Hunted and Hanged the Serial Killer Who Shocked the World, Jack the Ripper. Gary, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me along. I've got to ask, is Jack the Ripper the ultimate cold case? I think it is. It's, a, it's definitely, the, I think, the world's greatest ongoing murder mystery. And I, it, was, it really took me aback when I started working on this book because... Um, Look, I was aware of the, they're called ripperologists, and there are tens or hundreds of thousands of these ripperologists all around the world who have devoted their spare time and in many cases their lives to tracking down and trying to identify who the hell was Jack the Ripper. And there have been dozens and dozens of suspects thrown up over the years. And, you know, I set off to explore the life of one of those suspects, Frederick Bailey Deeming. I think over the last 20 or 30 years has been written off as a suspect by many of those in Ripper fandom because they regard his modus operandi, the, the way that he went about killing people is very different to how the Ripper killed his victims. And just for a bit of context, let's go back 1888, 
autumn in London, there are at least five women who are mutilated and murdered in London's East End. Various estimates say it could have been up to a dozen or even 18 over the span of four or five years. But in that concentrated period, there were at least five. And these are known as the canonical five. And they're regarded as uh, the prime example of what the Ripper was getting up to, which was basically dismembering his victims uh, in what clearly looked as though it was a killing spree by a man with some sort of medical knowledge uh, who had a deep hatred of women, particularly women who were seen around the streets of, of East London. Um, so, you know, I fell down that rabbit hole, basically, and it took me a long time to climb my way out. <laughs> well, I suppose this book, writing this book, uh, represents your climbing out of that rabbit hole. But now that you've brought up Frederick Deeming, Frederick Bailey Deeming, as being one of the prime suspects in the Jack the Ripper murders. He's a remarkably well-travelled gentleman and quite a storyteller himself as well. Tell me a little bit about the Frederick Deeming you've uncovered in your research. Well, I have to say right from the start, I don't think he was ever the sharpest tool in the shed, which I think makes his, uh, I wouldn't say them, call them achievements, but his exploits around the world for about three or four decades in the second half of the 19th century even more remarkable, I think, given the way that he got away with it. Now, you've got to remember, it was one of the things that really confounded me because I, I came across this man, Frederick Beeming, and he seemed to be jumping on a ship every year and he'd be sailing across to some part of the world or another. And you're thinking back, well, this is the 19th century. There are no, obviously no planes. And yet he was one of the most well-traveled individuals you could come across. And when you look deeper into it, you discover that back then, borders were very porous. You know, it was very easy to travel. Here we are in various lockdowns of one kind or another all around the country and the world. Uh, and yet this bloke could travel virtually at ease. You didn't need a passport for most countries, particularly through Europe. And identification papers were relatively unknown. So he would go and adopt uh, various um, disguises um, and call himself by different names, pseudonyms. Um, and he'd go and face people uh, left, right and centre. Uh, as I said, he wasn't sharp. He, was, he wasn't uh, a very smart bloke. But I think because of the, the base, the primitive nature of policing back then, the fact that many countries didn't even have an established police force. You know, it's only New South Wales really only recognised its own police force in Australia in the 1870s, as did Victoria, and then the rest of the colonies followed. So he was always one step ahead. Uh, there was no such thing as fingerprints. They, didn't, they weren't accepted as part of detective work until the early part of the 20th century. So if you wanted to commit a crime or a series of crimes, it wasn't that difficult to get away with it. And, uh, and this bloke, you know, he took it all. He, he changed his name. He fleeced people. He was a serial bigamist. You know, at one stage, I think he was married to three different women at one point. Um, he murdered his first wife and four children. He murdered his second wife. He proposed to another one and was also probably uh, preparing to murder her too after he officially married her. Uh, and then he was finally arrested by the Australian authorities, thankfully. I think he, uh, he probably deserves a lot more interest as a suspect than what many of the ripperologists have given him. Uh, basically, the Jack the Ripper uh, dismembered many of the bodies and left the body parts on display. They were quite horrific crimes. Uh, Frederick Deeming killed his first wife and four children by strangulation and with a knife and then buried them under a concrete slab in the kitchen of a rented villa that he was living in in the middle of England. 
Uh, he then married his second wife and came out here under a, an, an assumed name and killed her on Christmas morning in 1891 and then buried her under concrete. Um, so he had this method that he sort of adopted. Um, but many people say, well, he, he hid his bodies, whereas Jack the Ripper openly displayed the bodies and left them for the police to find. Um, so he did sort of carry on in the same way that that serial killer had conducted his murders. But I, I think when you have a look at some of the secondary evidence around it, it was a woman who said that she'd met a man very much like Frederick Deeming in London at the time of the Whitechapel killings. Um, he was taking a very, very keen interest in the newspapers and what they were saying about the Jack the Ripper. He hinted that it might have been him at one stage. He gave hints to others during various prison stints that they had no idea what he'd been up to over the years and that he definitely committed far more heinous crimes than what he'd even admitted to. So I think there is a lot more to the case. And I think, you know, Frederick Beeming has been sort of ignored a little bit because the purists believe there are only three or four really strong contenders to have been Jack the Ripper. But you know what? Here we are 140 years on, and uh, I think it's worth turning over a few of the old stones again and just seeing what lies underneath. Absolutely. He certainly seems capable and uh, possessing the right temperament, if you can say that. Yeah. Before we talk about the style of the book, I, I want to talk about the other, well, let's call them characters or other people uh, that uh, populate your book. And they're all very strangely related to the Victorian era's obsession with spiritualism, supernatural. I'm talking in particular about Sydney and Marion Dickinson. Tell me about these people. What was their role in this unfolding of a rather bizarre history? Sydney Dickinson, I fell in love with Sydney Dickinson and his wife, Marion. Um, they're from Boston. Uh, and Sydney is a uh, university graduate. His father was very wealthy until he'd sort of lost the family fortune. Um, and Sydney worked as a journalist around the world for many a time and then became a uh, professor of art. And he travelled through Europe studying the great masters. His first wife died in childbirth. Her daughter survived. And then Sydney married another woman, uh, Marion, a couple of years later. And Marion was besotted with the spiritual world. Now, this was a very middle-class and upper-class obsession in the 1870s and 1880s. It had sort of started up in uh, upper New York State in the 1840s when two young uh, girls, Fox um, sisters, uh, began telling their mother that they could hear weird tapping sounds in the house. And it, wouldn't, it would take another 40 years before they were exposed as having used apples and strings attached to their toes and then learned how to develop the knuckle muscles so that they could make cracking sounds and replicate those haunted noises. But spiritualism took hold and it went right throughout the Western world and into Europe. Um, and you had people like Queen Victoria who used to have private seances uh, to commune with the spirits of her, say, of her dead husband. Uh, royalty throughout Europe used to hire the best spiritualists around. And, you know, it, it sort of, uh, I guess, kicked off an era where you had so many charlatans and, and fakers who pretended that they could commune with the dead. So Sidney Dickinson marries Marion. Marion conducts seances where people claim they can see bodies coming out of the walls and flower petals being strewn around their room from the dead, which apparently the dead loved to do. And the era becomes quite besotted with it. And it's a very middle-class and upper-class fascination. They have seances in their parlour rooms on Saturday night. They speak with long-lost relatives. 
Um, there are tables that supposedly levitate. Uh, and this goes well into the early 20th century. You know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was uh, a, a big, big supporter of, uh, of spiritualism. So Sidney Dickinson moves around the world. He gives a lot of lectures on art. He ends up in Australia in the uh, 1890s giving his lectures. He thinks he can make a bit of money here. He comes across the case of Frederick Deeming and begins reporting it for the New York Times. And like the rest of the world, New York, London, right across Europe, everyone is spellbound by the case of Frederick Deeming. You know, he's only, he's, the bodies of his first wife and four children have only just been uncovered in their grave in England. Uh, the body of his second wife has only just been discovered here in Australia. A nationwide manhunt has uh, been launched and it goes on for about six weeks until they track him down in a small outback mining town called Southern Cross in Western Australia. They bring him back here and the subsequent inquest and then the murder trial, uh, it's page one lead of the New York Times every day for four or five days. And Sydney is always covering it. He then goes to meet Frederick Deeming in jail just before Deeming is executed by the Melbourne authorities and uh, takes a plaster cast of his arm because Sidney Dickinson and Marion are also very obsessed with palm reading and they want to see all the lines in Frederick's hand to see what differentiates himself from normal people. You know, there's this whole debate going on. Are criminals born or are they made? Um, and there is a, a view that he is an instinctive criminal, which means he was basically born a criminal uh, because his father was a bit mad as well. Yeah, it opens up this incredible world where not only do you have Sidney Dickinson, who is a committed spiritualist who believes in the afterlife, and he and his wife move into a rented home in Melbourne while they're there and believe the whole place is haunted and they're absolutely you know, stalked by these so-called spirits. But then you have Alfred Deakin, who is going on to become the second prime minister of Australia. He's the barrister at the time because he's trying to sort of recover the family's fortunes. They've been destroyed in the property market collapse of the 1890s. So he's gone back to the law. He's a committed spiritualist. And he actually believes that he can summon spirits from the dead and that he can control people using the powers of his mind. You know, uh, and there's the man who actually helped write Australia's um, our laws. That that's frightening. That's, Gary. It is, that's what we're basically we're living with today, effectively. Yes. Um, and the lawyer, the solicitor who acts on Frederick Deeming's behalf, Marshall Lyle, an Irishman, he uh, he too is a confirmed spiritualist. They are everywhere in all parts of society, uh, not just in Victoria and New South Wales, but all around the world. And that's what really attracted me to this story that these so-called well-educated people actually firmly believed in this stuff. And it was one of the excuses that Frederick Deeming, Deeming gave to the courts and the police about why he murdered his wives, children, is that uh, he believed his, the ghost of his dead mother was constantly waking him up at two o'clock every morning. And she kept urging him to go and kill all of these people around him. So whether or not he, he actually believed that story himself or whether or not he concocted it because he saw all of these spiritualists around him and thought there's a story that they might actually believe. Um, you know, and he was trying to plead insanity at one stage so he could escape the noose is anyone's guess. Talking about characters, the style of the book is unusual in that it's, well, it's nonfiction, but it's written in a way that could be interpreted as fiction or somewhere in between, I suppose. Was that one of your intentions when you first started writing the book to, to bring these characters to life? It seems much more than just nonfiction to me. 
Yeah, look, I always wanted to write a book like this, and I've tried to do it in a few other books. I did a book on Captain Moonlight the other year, and um, the William Buckley book where he escapes into the Australian outback and is um, adopted by the Wadarung Aboriginal people. But I was kind of limited by the amount of information that was there. And, you know, history is a very difficult thing. You've got to uncover the characters. You've got to uncover conversations. And it was only when I stumbled across Sidney Dickinson, who ended up writing a book about his experiences with Frederick Deeming and the afterlife about 20 or 30 years after the events, that I went, wow, you know, I might be able to do that with this book and construct it as a narrative. So it almost reads like a novel rather than just a, he went there on this date. You know, to me, a lot of nonfiction books lack that spark, you know, and I'm speaking as someone who used to sit in history, uh, high school history class and sit at the back yawning because I found it really hard going. And then I look at these the stories that are around that you come across and you go, why wasn't I taught about this? This is a way to bring history to life. And you can do that because you've got to have, but you've got to have the people there. The detail in this book is extraordinary. It indicates that your research has been exhaustive. Tell me about your research process. I'm sitting here with a very cool back and it's only just starting to recover because I effectively spent nine months hunched over the keyboard. Uh, it was during a period of successive lockdowns. So I was kind of limited in my travel. I couldn't get to England to go over there and go to visit some of the places. But I was lucky because, you know, we've got this thing in Australia called Trove, which is through the National Library of Australia. It's free. You log in and off you go. You can click on any newspaper over the last, say, since 1805, 1806. They're all fully digitised. You can cross-reference them. So I would have spent probably two months reading every page of just about every major newspaper and country newspaper that ever mentioned the word deeming or Alfred Deakin. I went through old books. I went on the UK uh, museum sites, the archives right throughout the UK. Basically what you do when you do a book like this, a nonfiction history book, is you've got to immerse yourself in the information and detail. Um, so I spent months just taking notes and reading and reading and reading. So 10 or 12 hours a day. And then it finally starts to settle at the base of your brain. And then you start thinking about the characters that you can bring in and how you set up a bit of a narrative structure. That's what I was intending to do right from the start. Once I found characters like Sidney Dickinson, Frederick Deeming, I thought, oh, well, this, only, this sort of a book only comes along once in your life, so you're going to make the most of it. You're obviously attracted to big stories. Your previous books, Captain Moonlight and the William Buckley story, and now Jack the Ripper perhaps the biggest of them all. What attracts you personally to these big stories? They're big life stories, really, aren't they? I'm looking for a story with you know, a strong character or strong characters that's also set in a time that you can still dig in and explain to people. Because for me, it's a bit of a, uh, a learning experience because, uh, as I said, I wasn't the best student in high school history class, but I'm fascinated by you know, what has gone on in the past. And perhaps if it was taught... Uh, with a little bit more excitement and interest than what I experienced when I was in high school. And look, a lot of us, probably a lot of people listening today, probably went to school in the 70s and 80s. And, uh, you know, you learn the old white fence Australia sort of background and we didn't learn much else. A lot of history is lacking humanity and lacking passion. And when I come across a story like William Buckley or Moonlight, in this case, Frederick Deeming, uh, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a bit of humour and what it really was to be a person back in that time and how difficult life was too back then. And it's a really fascinating book. Thanks for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks, Greg. Been a pleasure.
I've been talking to Gary Linnell about his latest book, The Devil's Work, How Australia Hunted and Hanged the Serial Killer Who Shocked the World, Jack the Ripper. It's published by Penguin Random House and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Luxury Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxury Read subscription today? Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.